Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew this year, Sunday mornings, and this is where we're at. Verses 44 through 46. And let's pray as we open God's Word this morning together. Our Father, we come with busy minds and busy hearts and busy spirits this morning. We pray that you would make us still and quiet in your presence. Confess that we are thinking about the things of last night or the things of yesterday, the things that are bothering us in the moment about someone in this room or someone at home or a family member we shall see later in this week or a neighbor or a coworker, or a boss. Confess that we are distracted by the things that will be going on later this week. Confess that we are weak people and it's hard for us to focus, especially in this age. And so we pray, especially this morning, that you would just quiet us in your presence. These things are not unimportant, but the most important thing is set before us, you. We pray that you would choose to reveal yourself to us this morning with your quiet, still voice, and that we would know that you've spoken to our hearts, that you've spoken to our minds and to our very souls with your truth. We stand upon your truth and want to hear your truth. Speak it to us, we pray today. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. This is the holy and errant word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. For those of you who didn't live through it, I want to, as a survivor and an eyewitness, give you a little of the details uh, this morning. Uh, it was everything that you heard that it was. I was only six years old, uh, and I remember, though, that day will be etched in my memory probably for the rest of my life. It was December 1983, and like the rest of American society, I witnessed and even experienced the Cabbage Patch doll craze. Uh, I remember my mom and I scheming and plotting to get my sister that thing that she could not possibly live without, Cabbage Patch Doll. Our town had been sold out of it for weeks. I remember all of a sudden on 
A December Friday night, we heard that there was going to be a special secret shipment of Cabbage Patch dolls to a K's merchandise that next Saturday morning. And so we told no one. But everybody else seemed to know too. Uh, we got bundled up on that cold Illinois December morning and rose very early in the morning out of love for my dear sister. And we got there hours before the store opened along with what seemed like the entire rest of the city of Springfield. And we stood for two and a half hours outside in the cold before the doors opened. And then the doors opened, and it was like a gunshot had gone off at a marathon race. And I remember my mom taking my hand and my feet barely hitting the ground as a six-year-old and us running to the back of the store where they put all of these Cabbage Patch dolls in their yellow boxes and we're fighting our way through the crowd and we seized one. Well, she seized one. And I remember her handing it to me and me holding it up over my head like we had just conquered the world. We had it. This Cabbage Patch doll, it was so valuable, we had to have it. It's funny, but crazes like this happen ever so often. Think about the new Apple iPhone or the Elmo doll or the VW Bug when it was re-released or the Popeye's chicken sandwich of today. There's a craze. And so we read a passage like this, and it's not a difficult passage to understand, but Let's try to make some sense of it, even so this morning. The kingdom of heaven here represents salvation in Christ Jesus and all the benefits that accompany Christ when we receive Christ. And the utter and complete value of Christ in this kingdom. We have two very short parables to illustrate this here in the text. In the first... The kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure that is hidden in a field, which a man is walking along, and all of a sudden he stumbles, and he stumbles over this treasure, finding this treasure, and so he goes out and he sells everything that he has so that he can go and he can buy this field and the treasure that is in it. The treasures have often been found in the ground in Palestine. This was not and is not such an uncommon phenomenon. Enemies would often come through that area of the ancient world and it would be conquered over and over. An uh, enemy would come and conquer and then off it would go. And before you would know it, another enemy would come through that part of the world and conquer. And there were no banks. There were no offshore accounts to keep your money safe and your valuables safe. And so what would you do? Well, you would bury it in the ground. You would hide the thing that you treasured the most and put it where it was in safekeeping and nobody could find it. My grandfather and my grandmother lived through the Great Depression and they were, like most in that generation, greatly affected by it. I, they didn't trust banks because they had seen runs on the banks like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. They'd seen that. They'd seen the stock market fall, and they had seen what they had earned, their parents had earned over a lifetime disappear in a moment. So I can remember my, dad, my grandfather one day when I was a little child saying to me, Jason, 
Let's go up to my bedroom. I have a secret to show you. And he pointed to, he had a row of shoes that sat on the floor of his closet. And he was a man that always liked to dress nice in nice shoes and a nice suit. And he pointed at this pair of black shoes and he said, he said, see that pair of black shoes? I said, yes. And he said, you could pick any pair of black shoes in this closet, just the black ones. He said, stick your hand down in it. So I stuck my hand down in that black shoe and and it brushed up against something. He said, now pull that out. And I pulled out a wad of cash. My grandfather kept his money and his black shoes in his closet because there it was safe. A treasure hidden in a field would be safe. Now, the problem is that it could be forgotten. Or if that person died or was taken away, and maybe that's why my grandfather was showing me in case he died, I knew that's where the money was at. If a person was taken away and carried off to another land, which would often happen in the ancient Near East, is you would have a treasure that would be left in a field still to be discovered by others. And so the parable pictures a man walking along who stumbles upon such a treasure. It is somehow unearthed in the field, and what a blessing for him. And so he sells all he has so he can go and buy that field and get that great treasure. The second parable is very similar. It tells of a merchant who is scouring the markets. He is looking to buy a costly and fine pearl. He's a buyer of pearls. Now, pearls in the ancient Near East would be even more valuable than they are today because you didn't have freshwater pearl farms like we today do today. They had no harvesting centers. It required a pearl diver to dive to the bottom of the ocean to get to the ocean floor and come up with an oyster and find a pearl that had been naturally created within that oyster. And so they could be one of the most valuable commodities in the ancient world. They were rare, and the finest of pearls could be the greatest of treasures. There's a famous story from the ancient world that, that demonstrates this. It is of Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and Cleopatra and Mark Antony were sitting over a meal, and Mark Antony was renowned for loving extravagant and exquisite food, and so they were eating there, and Cleopatra began to mock him for what she said was seeming extravagance. And she said, I could come up with a meal, Mark Antony, that would be what in today would be a meal that cost a half million dollars, $500,000. And he laughed at her, and they made a bet that the next day she would produce such a meal. And so the next day, there was a meal as they gathered together, and a meal the, the dishes came out, and the meal was set before Mark Antony, and he laughed at what was a very simple dish. And he ate it, and he declared that he was the winner of this bet. And then Cleopatra called out for the dessert, and the servants came out with a bowl of vinegar and set a bowl of vinegar before her. And she took one of two earrings that she had on, which were these huge, massive pearls. And she dropped one of the pearls in the vinegar and watched it dissolve, and then she drank it. 
And she reached for the other pearl to do the same. And there was a friend that was at the table who was the mediator and the decider of who won this bet. And the friend put their hand immediately over Cleopatra's hand to stop her because she had already, already expended $500,000 on that meal. It was that costly, a pearl of such great value. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like such a pearl, a pearl of the greatest value, like such a treasure of the greatest value. Our first point this morning, Christ and his kingdom are of infinite value. The treasure is great. The pearl is costly. It it alters the lives of these individuals when they stumble upon it, when they encounter it. And so it is with Christ and his kingdom, infinite value. Like, man, if there was one thing on this Sunday morning, Christmas Sunday morning especially, if I could engrave upon your minds and carve into your hearts and stir your spirits with, it would be how great this treasure is, how great Christ and all of His kingdom is. It's greater than anything your life could revolve around or your life is possibly revolving around as you sit in this room. And knowing Christ, knowing the value of that relationship, knowing that love that surpasses understanding, knowing that peace that can flood a heart and a soul, though it is troubled beyond troubles, a hope that can reside in a person's breast, though It is trial after trial, comfort and experience of of love and grace that is unequaled in, in anything. It seems uh, almost impossible to communicate. We'll try to pile up words to do it, we will say, oh, it is beautiful, Christ and His kingdom. Say it is so great. If we're really having a good day, we will say it's glorious, or if we are really trying to get to the bottom of it, we will use that most expansive of words, it is awesome. It just seems so feeble and so weak. No, this seems odd to hear this morning if you're outside of this kingdom. You haven't come to faith in Christ. I understand that doubt. We we value things that we can touch. We value things that we can see, like the treasure that's hidden in a field, though, the spiritual life, the blessings that come with the kingdom, that come with Christ, they are hidden. And so it's often mocked. It's often ridiculed. It's often made fun of. Like people must have thought that man was crazy for selling everything that he owned to buy a mere field. I think that probably if that man in that parable had a wife, uh, that wife would have been worried. 
he had kids and they had any comprehension, they would have been absolutely afraid. It doesn't make any sense. And so the person outside of the kingdom of Christ doesn't understand. I can say that categorically. I know you don't understand. I've been there. Most in this room have have been there. Though we may not ask it, we think it, how can they give up such so much? You give up your independence to, to follow this, this Christ that that died. You, you give up all these fun things in life. You, you can't entertain this sin any longer. That's a fun thing. Your money no longer is yours. You give so much of it away when you do this. You spend entire Sundays engaged in worship. There's football to watch. On your Saturday nights, you seem to retire early. So it's often mocked. We like religion, we just like it in small doses, with small demands. It it seems a little fanatical. What is wrong with these people? And this is the hesitation that many have when they look at Christ and His kingdom. There are aspects that, that we all find appealing about Christ. But if we're honest, there's just a lack of being convinced that He is that valuable. His kingdom is worth that much. So you want to hedge your bets. You want to stick a toe in the kingdom water, but don't want to jump in until you know the temperature. In essence, you aren't convinced the treasure is that great and the pearl is of such value, and so you hesitate. And Jesus is saying through this parable, don't. Can't. You must not. Christ and his kingdom is of more value than you can possibly understand from without. Apostle Peter, when he is trying to describe it in Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, he will describe the gift in this way. He says it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He tries to do it by negation because how do you do it in the positive? He says, look, it's, it's none of these things. It doesn't diminish. It's not unfading. It's so wonderful. If there were infinite worlds filled with infinite riches, they would still pale in comparison to what the Christian receives in Christ and His kingdom. Here's a gift that never diminishes, it never fades, and yet it's of infinite value. But it's hard to understand from without. The Scriptures often present the gospel as light that has come into a dark world, and it's a right illustration because we're all born by nature into this world as sinners. We sin because we're sinners. 
And we're all born into this world ignorant, and we're all born in this world groping around in sin and in darkness. Now, you might be offended by that. We're all offended being told that we're ignorant or that we're blind. John Newton, the famous writer of that hymn, Amazing Grace, once used this illustration when he was writing a, a letter to someone about this very thing. He was writing about a blind man, and he said this. He said, imagine that there was an entire nation of blind men, and everybody in that entire nation were blind, and yet there were two people in that nation that had sight. They could see. They could see a rainbow. They could see a tree. They could see a flower in full bloom. They could see the light of the sun, but they were the only two in this entire nation of blind people. And how could they ever communicate a true sense of what satisfaction and, and what joy there is in having such sight? They could talk about it, they could describe it, they could try and convey it to those who were blind, but it would be close to impossible. And what would happen, we would expect, in fact, we could even guess what would happen is that two people that could see in a nation of blind people would at the very least be mocked. Most likely, they would be ridiculed and declared insane. At the worst, they would be persecuted. Why? Because those who are blind cannot grasp the value of seeing and all that the eye is able to take in. They don't have a category for it. It is a strange thing. It is, no, so, it is not such a strange thing, though, that Christians like Christ receive the same response from a blind world, because we're telling people, you don't have the greatest of all things. You just don't until you have Christ. And we're saying to people that you are blind to it. You're missing out on the greatest of treasures. It's, it's a worth that cannot be documented, let alone explained. But we see it. We've known it. We've experienced it. What sort of treasure there is in Christ. And what a gift the kingdom of Christ is. And we want everyone to know it. I mentioned last week the, the faithfulness of those first 11 disciples going out and you think of them going out into the world and there is nothing of worldly gain that they secure. Not houses, not riches, not lands, not armies, not flocks of people following them. Why do they do it? It costs them all their life, but John, why do they do it? Well, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, 
and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. They've seen. They've heard. And the joy that they have experienced in communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they want others to receive the same. So their joy is even the more fuller. The happiest people in this life are those who have the lowest view of themselves and the highest view of Christ. They know His value. They know what they are apart from Him, that they are blind and destitute and lost. They were blind, but now they see. And what they see has surpassing worth. What they see is worth giving up all for. And that's our second point this morning. Christ and His kingdom are worth giving everything for. The man sells all that he has to buy the field. The merchant sells all that he has so that he can get that pearl all that they have. When you find something of such worth, you are willing to sacrifice everything for it. Indeed, you will give all things for it. It costs. Christian grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is a costly grace. It's not a cheap grace. What we receive in Jesus Christ, it cost him mightily. It cost him his very life. The Father had to send his Son to this world. What we celebrate this very week. To be born of flesh, to be born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. And he suffered, and he was bruised, and he was beaten, and he was smitten, and he was afflicted for our sake. And then he died that ghastly death upon the tree. It was very costly, this grave. costly for our Savior. But there's a cost for us as well, and that's also why it's not a cheap grace. Notice that in both of these parables, the word buy is used. Now, we have to be very clear about what Christ means here and what He doesn't mean. He, of course, does not mean that the kingdom or salvation or Himself are purchased by the Christian no, that cannot be. Salvation is all of grace. From beginning to end, our salvation is of grace. The Son of God came into this world and lived and died for us. It is of grace. What you and I could not accomplish in and of ourselves, or even collectively together, He does for us. And then He extends that grace to us. God in His kindness sheds His light upon our darkened souls and we are saved by that grace as we are given the gift of faith. It's a gift. 
a gift that's just received, that can't be merited in any way. And yet, you have this bi-language in Scripture. Isaiah said the same thing in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How do we make sense of this? Well, salvation is a free gift. It's extended out to us. It's something we just need to receive, and yet it is said we buy it in the sense that when we come to Christ Jesus, we joyfully turn our backs upon the desires of the flesh. We allow nothing to hold on to us, nothing to prevent us from obtaining it. As Calvin once said, that's what happens, right, famously when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He gets a glimpse. He gets a glimpse of the treasure that Christ is. He gets a glimpse of all the glory that is there. He gets a glimpse of what the kingdom could be for him. He's on the verge. But he proves unwilling. He's unwilling to surrender and sacrifice all for Christ. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Is that we die to ourselves and we die to this world. I remember sitting with a man over a decade ago. Uh, we met weekly for months and months. Sat with him week after week to study the scriptures together and uh, tell him about the glories of Christ and to share the gospel with him. And each week I would say to him, Christ died for sinners. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And each week we would be back together sitting over coffee. And one week I remember pressing him very hard. They said, we've been reading the Scriptures for months together, and we've been discussing the Gospel for months together. Christ died for sinners, and you are a sinner desperately in need of His grace. Will you place your faith in Christ? Will you do it today? And He gave me a categorical no. He said, no, I won't. I asked him why, and he said, the price I would have to pay is too great. It's a direct quote. The price I would have to pay is too great. He rightly understood that this is not a cheap grace. His family were all drug addicts, and he was a drug addict himself. And yet, in that family, he was the patriarch of that family. They all revered him and respected him. And they would often get together on Friday nights and Saturday nights at his house and abuse drugs together, and he was the life of the party. He was the one that everyone came to for advice. He was the respected person in their midst. 
He was willing to give up the drugs, but he wasn't willing to give up that. He said to me, he said, I, it's not the drugs that have a hold. He said, I could give that up, but I'm afraid of losing my position in the family. We may sit here today and we may say, oh, that is such a small thing. Not for him. Not for him. It was his place in this life. And he may look at something that those of us in this room would hold on to. Maybe it is our retirement accounts, or maybe it is our Friday nights, or maybe it is the pride that we have of wanting to earn our salvation, or maybe it is that illicit affair that we are in, or whatever it may be. And he would say, that is so small. Because here's the reality. They're all very small things compared to the value of the treasure that we are rejecting. They're all small. They just don't seem small in our own personal life. One very real sense. Nothing else in the world mattered to that man once he stumbled upon the treasure. Nothing else mattered to the merchant once he found that one pearl of great value. They were willing to give up everything, everything else for it. It became their singular pursuit. For the Christian, nothing has significance like Christ. For me to live is Christ, the Apostle Paul said, and to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because it just means more of Christ. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, Christ gives us many other things to enjoy. I, I'm going to enjoy some Christmas cookies this week. To be honest, I've enjoyed Christmas cookies this past week. But He gives us all kinds of wonderful things to enjoy. Our families, our marriages, our homes, our vocations, our vacations, our retirements. But Christ is to be our greatest treasure. And He is worth sacrificing anything for. Christ is making it clear He's saying coming to Him isn't simply believing that He existed or liking His teaching. There were many disciples who would turn away from Christ when they had been following, as John records in John chapter 6, they could not abide anymore. As John tells us, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. They didn't know Him. They, they liked part of His teaching, but they didn't actually know Him. The Father hadn't opened their eyes, as Jesus says. It's not enough just to like some of His teaching, nor is coming to Christ receiving the kingdom, simply embracing the theology of the Bible with our minds and be able to articulate right doctrine. Neither is it simply coming to church on Sundays. It isn't being baptized or going to Sunday school class or having some feeling in some given moment or over some moment in our lifetime. Just surrendering all to Christ. 
It's going all in on Christ. It's leaving no chips in reserve, pushing them all to the center of the table, all in for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul is an example in the Bible, is, is a wonderful example of this. He is so clear about the free offer of the gospel. He, he will go toe-to-toe with the Judaizers that are following in his wake and saying, look, you've got to do one more thing to be saved. You need to be circumcised, or you need to obey these food laws, or you need to do something else. And Paul is saying, no, no. The gospel is a free offer. It's a gift that is received. And yet, he's also very clear that all must be surrendered when coming to Christ. He details all that he lost in coming to Christ there in Philippians 3. Paul had to surrender all things. He had the pedigree. He had the status. He had the lineage. He had the education. He had the respect. He had from an earthly perspective what every single Jewish male longed to have. As Paul, he details it himself. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How do you explain it, the surpassing worth? He says, for His sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, all things. Now, what does he mean? He was still a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was still of the tribe of Benjamin. It's not like those things vanished about his person. No, it was that he no longer valued these things. They no longer had a hold on his life. His life was now Christ. In fact, Paul says that he counts, he reckons all these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He counts them as rubbish. That word that he uses means excrement, dung, feces. That's what they mean to him when compared to Christ. Christ said to him, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The free offer. Just have to receive it. But he also said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. As we come to him, we do so denying anything and everything else from having a hold on our lives. For the Christian to live is Christ. It's not easy. It's not easy in reality. But as a Christian, the Christian must be able to say, that all could be stripped away. 
The respect I receive from others could be stripped away. My family could be stripped away. My wealth could be stripped away. Even my bodily health could be stripped away. And I could still confess that I am the richest person in all the earth. Because I have Christ. Job, who is experiencing that very thing, all things being stripped from him, he could say, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Because he knew on whom he had believed. And he knew that treasure. Write this down. We lose nothing when we give up everything for Christ. We lose nothing when we give up everything for Christ. All the things we value in this life are slight compared to the value of Christ. Finally, on this Christmas week, make sure you found and received this treasure. And if you found and received this treasure, then don't forget the, the value of this treasure. So easily done. You'll notice that the parables, they're almost identical but there's a big difference between the one between the two of them. In the first, the man stumbles upon the treasure. In the second, the man is seeking after the pearl. He's looking for it. And people come in different ways to Christ and to his kingdom. Some stumble into what they weren't looking for. They weren't expecting it. Paul, when he's on the road to Damascus, he has this momentary, climatic, cataclysmic, Event with Christ. And so it happens with some. It happened with the woman at the well who no doubt got up that morning and had no thought about Christ or His kingdom. And yet in that moment, as Christ encounters her at the well, her life is changed. And yet there are others that are looking, that are seeking. At the Ethiopian eunuch who was looking for answers, reading the prophet Isaiah and wondering what this means, or like Cornelius who is on his knees and praying, they are searching for it. And there are those in this room this morning who have different experiences. Some have a dramatic, momentary, cataclysmic conversion moment. You could point to the day, you could point to the hour, some of you can point to the minute. There are others you were exploring every religion you could read about. You were asking questions. You were seeking answers, and Christ met you with the answers. Some were finding the world's never-ending treadmill of promises wore them out. You kept chasing after the next sexual experience or the feeling of being loved or respect or the next financial goal or the next vacation or the next meal or the next experience of being a father or a mother or a friend or a homeowner or a retiree, but you eventually found out that you were running nowhere. And as Augustine famously said, you realize thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And oh, how that merchant found when he found that pearl, pearl that he could rest. 
Others have grown up in Christian homes, and you say, I don't ever remember there being a day that I didn't know the Lord Jesus. Different experiences that all found the same thing, that Christ and His kingdom is of surpassing value. You can't quantify it. You can't describe it. But He is your greatest treasure. And you would not give up anything in exchange. It's cliche today to talk about Christmas and say the greatest present has already been received in Jesus. That's cliche to say, don't mistake the wrapped presents underneath the tree is the meaning for the season, the reason for the season. You know, things become cliches because they're repeated a lot, and some things are repeated a lot because they need to be repeated a lot. And that's the case here. He's the greatest gift. There's nothing like it. Even as Christians sitting here this morning, if you are a Christian, we have to remind ourselves of that, don't we? It's so easy. Our minds go traipsing after other things and caught up in other things. and We find more delight in the things of this world, of the things of our person, of the things of our friends and our spouses and our families and our work and our vocations and our vacations. And we value Christ, but that value just doesn't seem to burn quite as bright as it used to. And so we remind ourselves again that there is nothing like Christ or the kingdom of Christ. Paul is constantly grasping at words to try and describe it. Maybe my favorite is in Ephesians 3. He calls Christ and all the benefits that attend to Christ, he calls them the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable riches. You can't dive to the bottom of this thing. You can't get to the height of this thing. You can't get to the breadth of this thing. You can't get to the length of this thing. It's unsearchable. We need that reminder. And I pray that you all know the value of Christ in His kingdom, especially during this Christmas week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us the greatest treasure that we could ever imagine. And even as we say that, and even as we've spoken about it, it seems so trite and so silly to even try and state it with words. That the very Son of you, God in heaven, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, our creator, our sustainer, was born in human flesh, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might be called sons and daughters of yours. 
What a gift. Ah, oh, we pray that we would know this gift which surpasses understanding, the indescribable riches of Christ, and that we would delight in our Savior more and more day after day. And we pray for those in our midst that are still in darkness, that you would shed the light of your truth upon their minds and their hearts, that they might find Christ to be their all in all. May it be true of all of us in this room that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain because it is only more of Christ our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.